the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello, everybody. Um, I'd like to warmly welcome everyone around the world watching this very special live Twitter broadcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be chairing this session. My name's Dr. Tanya Selak. I'm a consultant anaesthetist uh, working in Wollongong, New South Wales, Australia. Uh, and we are discussing the very new, very exciting, hot off the press new paper from Anesthesia Journal, which is Recommendations for Standards of Monitoring During Anesthesia and Recovery in 2021. And today uh, we are joined by three of the authors of the paper. So we have, uh, first up, we have Dr. Andy, uh, sorry, Professor Andy Klein. He's the editor-in-chief of Anesthesia Journal. Uh, he's morning, also, good morning or good evening for you. Uh, <laughs> 6 a.m. for me. How, what's the time for you? Uh, nine you o'clock here. Nine o'clock, lovely. Uh, so he's the co-chair of the working party. We also have uh, Dr. Tim Meek, who's in Middlesbrough, um, who's the immediate past honorary secretary of the association and also, also co-chair. Hello, Tim. Nice to see you. Good evening. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, and we've got Dr. Tay Sheraton. Um, she's uh, coming to us from Newport in Wales. Hi, Tay. Good morning. Um, and uh, she's the Honorary Membership Secretary of the Association. So welcome, all of you. How lovely to be here. So why don't we kick off straight away with Andy. I'd just like you to really um, put in context uh, these uh, monitoring guidelines. They're an update. Why did, why did they need to be updated? Uh, thanks very much. Well, these guidelines have been around for a while, uh, and the last one was six years ago in 2015. Uh, and there's a lot's happened since. There's a lot of new technology. There've been a lot of new studies, especially in the world of EEG monitoring and in the world of neuromuscular monitoring. So we felt we had to update them based on the most recent research. Now, Tim, can you just tell me, for those who haven't read the paper, and it's an excellent paper, what are the key points that are different in this paper compared to the previous version? Well, in, in line with our intention to continually push the, the boundaries of our, our guidelines recommendations. There, there, there are many subtle changes, but I guess the ones that are perhaps causing the most interest are uh, changes in the way we're recommending capnography uh, should be used. Uh, also, the move towards quantitative neuromuscular um, blockade uh, and also a, a kind of an up, upgrading of our recommendations relating to processed EEG monitoring uh, during, during TIVA. Uh, anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And Tim, can you tell me what was the process to go through to come up with these guidelines? Okay, so well, uh, we convened a, an, an expert working party, and you'll be able to see the authors if you look, if you look at the paper. I think there were thirteen of us in total, uh, all clinical anaesthetists, mostly with a special interest in something, um, but by no means uh, plucked from rarefied academia uh, and uh, we got together looked at the old guidelines worked out what needed to stay in and what needed to to go out um, talked about the areas where things had changed and then through an iterative process uh, came up with these new guidelines and then uh, we were pretty forceful weren't we Andy with our editing I guess uh, we, we concluded in a fairly short order for a, for a working party um, I was totting up, the, I think, the, between the working party members, about 300 years of clinical anaesthesia experience. 
so quite a few years. Um, and then after that, it goes to our board where it's reviewed again and probably a similar amount of experience. And then it's offered out to the members uh, for consultation. We have 10,000 members. So times that by the average amount of experience, there's, uh, there's been a, a lot of people with a lot of experience have looked at this before delivering it to the world. So Tay, you were a member of the working party. Um, what did you perceive was the biggest sticking point in these guidelines? What was the trickiest thing to come to consent? Because that's a that ten thousand members and a working party coming to some sort of agreement. I can't get two anaesthetists to agree on anything. Yeah. So what was it? What were the sort of most difficult things to navigate? So probably the the quantitative neuromuscular blockade. There was quite a lot of discussion around that. And um, the uh, the process to EEG, I think those were the two things that, that there was the most discussion about. Would you say that was right, Tim and Andy? Yeah, I think yeah, so. A lot of discussion about levels of sedation uh, oh, and yeah, yeah. Um, right. uh, probably an inordinate amount of discussion about that. Mm -hmm. And what was the what was the issue with levels of sedation, Tim? I think it was trying to come up with clinically useful descriptors of levels of sedation that would help inform the use of the, the, the monitoring that we were, were talking about. Um, and I think in the end, we, we came up with a, a, a very simple cutoff point, which was the loss of verbal response, rather than trying to rely on a very complicated stratified table of, of different levels. Mm -hmm. and, was, and do you think the membership were quite comfortable with that? Well, based on the responses or the, the, um, the lack of adverse responses to the consultation, <laughs> I would, I would say so. Right. I mean, yeah, that's right. Wonderful. Um, there has no, been quite a lot of chat about whether we can uh, mandate for all types of sedation. So you have to make it clear that this, uh, this, these guidelines are aimed at anaesthetists who are giving sedation. And we all know that sedation is a continuum between sort of lightly sedated, a little bit of midazolam perhaps, and heavily sedated, which is often the practice in Australia for you guys, Tanya, isn't it? Where people will give a whole bunch of propofol and maybe remifentanil as well and call that mm -hmm. sedation and the patients are pretty out cold. Uh, and so we're really looking at that whole continuum and we decided when the patient no longer is talking to you and doesn't respond, then that's that's the time when you should be monitoring their airway more closely with, with capnography. And that technology exists much more easily than it did six years ago we can now use all sorts of devices to measure capnography, even with nasal specs, with uh, uh, oxygen masks, or even with high flow during sedation. So there's plenty of technology now for measuring capnography easily and very cheaply whenever we give sedation. Yeah, it is, it is very interesting, very common in Australia to provide so-called sedation for gastros gastroscopy and colonoscopy, but verbal content is not maintained. Um, and so our guidelines here say that our ECG should be available, for example, um, and capnography should be available, but doesn't sort of mandate its use. It doesn't go the next step, although, you know, future guidelines may well. Um, so we're mandating it because we think it's essential. I mean, this is a dangerous time. Uh, mm -hmm. and. Uh, it, you don't have a, an easy airway where they've got a gastroscope down or they're lying on their side or in all sorts of positions for colonoscopy. So we're saying that's essential. And it's easy to think they're, they're breathing when, in fact, their airway is obstructed. 
All right, let's for a minute um, turn to regional anaesthesia. This is an exciting bit in the guidelines. It um, was not addressed before, and we know we have many regional anaesthetists uh, really interested in this topic on Twitter and in the real world. Um, so, take perhaps you could take us through what does the what does the guidelines say about regional anaesthesia and uh, how, how we should monitor those patients. So patients who are having um, largely upper limb blocks, they're not patients who are not in the deck chair position and who aren't having neuraxial blockade, then they should have an anaesthetist that's immediate, that when they perform the block, they're monitored and then they need to be for the first 15 minutes within two minutes of coming back to the patient. And then in the next 15 minutes, that can be delegated to somebody else with appropriate skills and, and um, but you still have to be two minutes, two minutes away. Mm -hmm. And the idea of that is that most of the um, serious complications will occur in, in that time window and the presence of an anaesthetist to recognise when those things are happening is really important. Um, mm -hmm. I think that'll be quite interesting when we compare that to what actually happens maybe in some other specialties in emergency medicine. I don't, I don't think that, that that's necessarily a standard that's followed at the moment in terms of the presence of, an, of the, the person. They just put it in and, and leave. Yes, I think that's um, it's interesting, isn't it? Particularly with all the rib fracture blocks happening at the moment. So, um, so Tim, perhaps to you, what happens in your hospital with, say, to, uh, you know, rib fracture blocks? What's the current sort of monitoring there? Is there a big gap between what happens now and what the guidelines say? Well, I mean, I, I can't speak for what happens in the emergency department. I mean, just to sort of just to slightly ignore your question and just cycle back a little bit there, we, there was some interest in this country um uh, maybe two or three years ago around um uh, i think it was fascia iliaca blocks uh, in the emergency department um where perhaps some of the things that we would recognize which would be either local anesthetic toxicity or sudden removal of all pain in somebody mm -hmm. who's had a large dose of opiates um uh, and, and, and perhaps the, these patients weren't weren't monitored. So I mean, the, the, the College of uh, Emergency uh, Medicine have issued new guidance um, based partly on discussions with with um, with us uh, about this. Um, but I mean, certainly, I would I would hope that in the emergency department they, they would follow these these same guidelines. Obviously, we have we have no position to to mm -hmm. impose that upon them. Um, but generally, I think. Uh, if we're saying something about an anaesthetic technique that we would do, the same should apply when somebody else does it somewhere else. Um, does that uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, mentioned the fascia iliaca blocks, and that's been with their rising popularity. We've had the same issues here, so it is so interesting, isn't it, to have these global conversations about issues that face uh, our patients, no matter where we work. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. All right. Um, and Tim, since I've got you, let's move on to um, obstetrics. There's been a fair amount of um, engagement and controversy on Twitter about where anaesthetists should go in terms of monitoring patients who are in labour who are having epidurals. You know, should I come to the labour ward, put my epidural in and have sort of ECG, blood pressure, pulse oximetry on the labour ward? Do I just do that when I have a top up for theatre? What do the guidelines say? So it's really important to draw a distinction here between anaesthesia and analgesia. So we're not suggesting that the practice of, of monitoring during labour analgesia should change. So that's um, where typically we're using low dose 
um, regimes of, of, of local anaesthetic. Certainly, so that needs to be quite clear. We are saying that where that gets converted into a top-up for an anaesthetic for a surgical procedure, so topping up for a C-section, that these guidelines should apply. Uh, and certainly when we take a, a woman to theatre for a C-section, we would apply all of the normal monitoring when we top up uh, an, an epidural. Now, there is a bit of crossover there with normal practice where we might start topping up in the delivery room before we move to theatre. Some units do that, some units forbid it. Uh, now, at the moment, it's probably highly unusual to transfer high-level monitoring to the room before you do that top-up. It probably only happens when the woman moves to the room. Uh, now, we're not advocating for overnight change. We know that doesn't happen. But I think over time, we probably should move to a situation where, where if the woman's being topped up in the room for C-section, we should bring portable monitoring, which if people follow our guidelines, will, be, will become increasingly available uh, and establish that you know, as, as the top is being done. Because we, we do recognise that, that complications can happen. You're giving a big dose of local anaesthetic, um, you know, you, you will occasionally get an adverse effect. Not very often, but you want to pick up those not very often occurrences. Interesting. People have said, is that too much to put an ECG, a saturation monitor, and a non-invasive blood pressure monitor on a woman when you're giving them 20 or 30 mils of local anaesthetic in the epidural as a big shot? I don't think it is too much, Tim. I really don't. You know, I no, think that's I, a potentially I dangerous time. You're not in... You're, you're not surrounded by all your team. It might be just you and the midwife. There's a lot of rushing around. It's stressful. What happens if it, some of it goes intraspinally? Well, I, I agree. And, then, and I think sometimes it takes a paper like this to just perhaps change the focus on, on things. Uh, but it, essentially, when you're topping up with the epidural, you are starting to give a surgical anaesthetic, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, as I say, we're not expecting this is going to change tomorrow. Uh, but one of the underlying themes of all of our guidelines, not just this one, but all of the association guidelines is that as they evolve over time, uh, we try to improve standards. We try to kind of, you know, push people up the ladder and pull the ladder up behind them so that over, over time we, we get better, uh, better monitoring and, and better surveillance of patients. And that can only be a good thing. Uh, I, I'd be really interested to hear the arguments against so I'll, so I'll give you the arguments against it in obstetrics. I work with some colleagues who, for example, during caesarean section, uh, take ECG off. And that's so that the baby can come onto the chest during caesarean section to have skin to skin. And the arguments for it in my part of the world is that um, it follows all guidelines because uh, ECG uh, has to be, it's mandated that ECG is available, but there's no directive on how you should use it. And there's a concern that that's interfering with the bonding of the baby. Yeah, but that, Tanya, that doesn't make sense at all. You can put the ECGs behind yeah, the shoulder. Right. You don't need to have them on the chest. You have them behind the shoulder blades and on the scapula. That's, I just don't think that washes. You have, a, you have a, a situation where you can have ventricular arrhythmias. There's no skin to skin if you have to do CPR and you don't notice they've got into a fast AF or a VT. I think I, that just doesn't wash. And if you, what, what would a court of law say if you weren't monitoring a woman uh, for a, you know, a, a major surgical abdominal procedure uh, when you could monitor them very easily? Yes, and other people do things, as you say, the ECG behind on the back, and also some people put the blood pressure on the leg as well to yep, yep. sort of 
get the arms interfere. Some people move IVs in different places. They come up with creative solutions yep. to sort of get this monitoring out the way so they can still sort of have the best of both worlds. They can have be monitored, but also, um, you know, have the baby with them. But it's a very, as you can see, there's a very big divergence in views in terms of what people are actually doing and, and where we're at with that. So it's really great to have that discussion. Um, now, one of the other big points of controversy, Andy, I've got you, is this um, uh, transfer situation. This is perhaps the biggest thing that we've been arguing, well, arguing, discussing. I love my Twitter family. Um, I'm in theatre. I'm in the operating theatre. I've got my anaesthetised patient. They're an ASA1. They've had an ankle. Uh, they're spontaneously ventilating on an LMA. Um, we have to move the patients through quickly. Every minute costs money in theatre. There's a huge backlog of patients. So I uh, take my patient off the operating table, remove all the monitoring, and I head down the corridor myself, the wards person, the patient, LMA, breathing. I have a little blue bag with oxygen but no monitoring. And then I arrive in recovery and put the monitoring back on. And the patient's blue, they're not breathing because they're biting <laughs> on their LMA, they're in VT. I mean, we've had it all. We've ha I've had been involved in so many serious untoward incidents where the patient has arrived in recovery unmonitored with an unrecordable blood pressure or a clamp down on their LMA and, or, uh, you know, sats that are unrecordable. I mean, you spend the whole time. Are you saying that you would happily turn off your monitor during your ankle operation for five minutes or four minutes or whatever and just not have any monitoring during the procedure? What I'm saying is that's com be common practice. It's common it might be common practice, but it's dangerous. I mean, why would you not monitor the patient? Why would you monitor them for your 45-minute ankle operation, then turn all the monitoring off, go down the corridor, get to recovery, and turn all the monitoring back on? That just doesn't make sense. There is now new technology where you just unplug it and you watch it as you go. And it's so much safer. I mean, it, it just does not make sense when you think about it. So we know that there's a cost implication for this. It's, it's a huge cost implication. But when we upgraded our monitors, our lovely new monitors came with portable monitoring that was part of the standard thing. And you don't have to unplug anything. You just pick it up and go and then put it back in in recovery. I mean, mm -hmm. is, what do you do in your hospital, Tay? So yeah, we've got portable, we've, well, we've just opened a new hospital, so we have portable monitors now. And I think that the introduction of those portable monitors makes it so much easier and so much more streamlined um, compared to how it used to be. And if anything, you'd think it's more dangerous to not have that monitoring on as they're lightening and they're waking from anesthesia, yep. as opposed to like in the middle of ankle surgery when you've got all your analgesia and it's all yeah. usually. The patient's waking up, they're, you know, they... They're, they're in pain, they're clamping down on their lanjar mask, they're coughing because they've got a bit of secretions. It's the most dangerous time, as Tay says, and you want to have them unmonitored, and then you're walking on the corridor, and then there's another bed being moved, so you have to stop. Uh, uh, you run out of oxygen, you don't notice because your oxygen cylinder doesn't actually tell you there's oxygen coming out. How many times have we had it that the oxygen cylinder hasn't been turned on, the patient's actually not getting oxygen, but the bag's moving, and the sats are 60 or 70, uh, you know, it's, it, I think it's inexcusable in the in the modern time period to say that, oh, it's OK, I'm watching the patient, I've got a finger on the pulse. What do you do, I, Tim? I, I, I agree, I agree. Our, our clinical skills uh, are not as, as good or as reliable as we would like to think, and numerous studies have shown that over time. I mean, rather like to tell you, we have, a, we have a nice system in our hospital. Um, we have a portable monitor that has a, a, a screen that replicates the main screen, so we have continuous monitoring from... 
um, anaesthetic room into theatre, from theatre to recovery or theatre to ITU. They're all compatible between different locations. Uh, and I, I suspect this might be like, you know, in the olden days when the department had one pulse oximeter that the professor was allowed to use or an ECG machine that got moved around um, you know, before my time, obviously. Um, having, having now worked in the system where we have that continuous seamless monitoring, um, which also means that the, the unit remembers everything, so you don't have to scrabble between rooms to write your chart. Um, I think I look back now and think, did, did we really disconnect when we used to move between? How, why did we do that? It's just, it just and how do you think like it looks in court if the patient comes into recovery with a SATS of 60? So, the, the, you know, there's gonna be, they're going to have a field day with you if you haven't monitored them on the way. Well, it is, I must say, it's interesting to me because I work in some places that monitor the whole way through and some places that don't. And my experience was um, there was a lot of pushback initially because people were like, what do we need? There's, there's wires everywhere. What do we need all this monitoring for? We're going to lose the thing. We don't like it. Um, but actually all but all but one person use the monitor now. It's not mandated, but people just, uh, they're all monitored. It's really easy. Unplug put that on the bed with the patient and everything else and off you go. And as you say, when there's a kerfuffled finding a recovery bed, someone's taken your bed and you're sort of delayed a bit longer than you thought you might have been. Um, I feel so comfortable that I've got that monitoring on. And so my problem now is when I work in places that where that doesn't happen, I feel uncomfortable. So it has taken me from a position of comfort to discomfort. So um, I really, I really recognise what you say, but I think um, my feeling is from Twitter and from speaking with you that there's this quite difference um, in terms of how we approach these problems around the world. Um, so we talked about pulled up your ladder, Tanya, haven't you? You've pulled up your personal ladder. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, with COVID. With COVID as well, when you're wearing when you're wearing all the PPE, my situational awareness is definitely a lot worse. And so to have that monitoring as well, and other people can look at the monitoring and say, "Oh, this has happened or that's happened." I found it I found it difficult in in especially in the red. Um, sometimes I'd have to go really really close to see what was happening, and yeah. So I, I think that has made a difference too. Interesting, um, Andy. You talked about um, record keeping. Uh, where the monitor keeps the record, you know, you've got mm. the monitor from the anaesthetic bay into theatre, into recovery, then you've got the record. Now, the new um, anaesthesia, the guidelines talk about preferentially moving to an electronic record. That's also quite controversial. We, we here, I'm still writing things down. Um, there's been a there's been a few massive um, infiltrations of hospital systems. I know Ireland's had a problem. Uh, Hamilton in New Zealand, where the whole hospital's been um, attacked, and none of the electronic things work. What's your kind of view on that, Andy, in terms of safety of data and people coming in and messing with your anaesthetic machines and all that? So I think there's a difference between keeping a record and having a sort of an automated anaesthetic machine. So I think you can't really hack into the anaesthetic machine controls. But an automated record, when you're busy, uh, it is absolutely essential. It's so difficult to keep a record when you're trying to work out and troubleshoot why the SATs are low or why the patient sounds wheezy or, or, or the blood pressure's low or someone's bleeding and you're checking blood products and you've just got people running around all over the place. Then what happens is the record just doesn't get done and then you make it up afterwards or you you sort of look back at yourself and then you're you're just forever looking backwards and that's not a good thing you want contemporaneous at the time record keeping 
and you want to keep a record of everything. You know, you want the record of the not only just the SATs and the ECG and the blood pressure, but also the entitled CO2, the respiratory rate, the airway pressures, the the uh, tidal volumes that were being delivered. If you've got particularly if you've got airway problems, how much low, uh, uh, entitled uh, anaesthetic agent was being delivered? You know, your MAC and your your there's so much that to to keep a record of. I don't think you could do it by hand and be busy and, you know, do what's going, see what's going on. I think nowadays with electronic records keeping systems, they're so good. And yes, they do go down and you need a plan B and a plan C. We still keep our, our books in theatre. So if the machine goes down, we can take a, a manual record. And that happens once every month or every couple of months or it doesn't connect to the network or whatever. But at the end, it prints out an electronic record goes in the patient's record and it never gets lost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's in the electronic records when you need to discuss it at a meeting if there's been a problem or when you need to discuss it with a, a surgeon or an investigator afterwards. I, I think nowadays that there are, you know, they may be expensive. They may have pros and cons to all of them. But I think certainly I work in cardiac and I find them absolutely essential. Um, another comment on Twitter I have a lot is people love it for research and, in fact, it being a service to our researchers where we're just collecting mass amounts of data so the researchers can go back and actually accurately see, as you say, all those things and what we write is clearly not the same as what's recorded. Um, so, Tay, I wanted to ask you about neuromuscular monitoring. There's a fair amount of angst about the need to either, number one, monitor um, paralysis at all. Uh, number two, whether a peripheral nerve stimulator is okay. Or number three, where qualitative, um, quantitative monitoring is recommended. Could you just talk us through that, Tay? Yeah, so I, I kind of understand all of the all of those issues. So, so in in my own unit, um, we we have got um, the quantitative monitors, but they're they're difficult they're difficult and cumbersome to use, and and probably aren't being used as as much as they should. But the guys who were on the group who were um, had expertise in that area made a really convincing case for why we should be using them and how much they reduced your um, airway complications by. And again, I know I talked about COVID earlier, but going back to COVID, I think if you're transferring, uh, so where I work, we had we had a lot of COVID, especially in the first wave. And so the community levels were quite high. And when we're transferring the patients back to recovery, the staff in recovery were all in amber, whereas we would all have been in red. So if you get coughing and spluttering and, uh, in a COVID environment in recovery, um, not only is it bad for the patient, it's bad for the, those recovery staff as well. Um, so there was a convincing case made that the counter argument sometimes is with the use of sugamidex here um, and that here is really taken off many people say well I don't need to monitor I give the rocuronium and I give this magic drug sugamidex and it's all gone because that's what the rep told me and it's been quite interesting where that's we know that's not actually true but people get this false idea um, that it's just you just give you have really deep paralysis because the surgeon says you must be totally paralyzed for my very clever laparoscopic whatever um, and then it's fine they're so fast I'll just turn it off with sugamidex and on goes the next one yeah I don't I think you're right that isn't that isn't the case that you get fewer airway complications at the end of the procedure with sugamidex um, and my understanding is that that you can you get more laryngo- you get more laryngospasm with the use of sugamidex and I think that you obviously get better reversal and certainly with I do a panendoscopy list 
And um, before we had Sugamadex, I thought they were all fine. And But then once we had Sugamadex, yeah, you could see they, were, they look totally different, the patients afterwards. But you've still got to monitor them because if they've got yeah. uh, you know less twitches, you give the Sugamadex, it might not be enough. Yeah. The point is that we think it's enough. They get four twitches and you think, oh, they're fine. But actually four twitches can be anything from 40% to 100% return. And that's the point. Four twitches can still be 40% of muscle uh, power, muscle uh, blockade reversed. So you get four twitches, you think, oh, that's great. But you actually might need more Sagamidex or you might be giving it still too early. So you've just got to monitor because you just can't tell. Yeah. And the other issue with more Sugamidex is it's, I believe it's coming off patent in a couple of years, and I believe the prices therefore uh, escalate a little bit here. So per 200 milligrams is something like 200 bucks an ampule. So that wow. decision to give an extra ampule is a lot of, you know, you can could you buy a bit of a monitor for that? Probably. Mm. Um, all right, let's uh, let's talk about um, Tim processed EEG, and then I'm going to go around and talk about implementation before we close. So, Tim, I just wanted to talk to you about processed EEG. The guidelines say if you've got uh, TIVA running, if you're paralysed, then it recommends processed EEG. Some people say uh, you haven't gone far enough. Why, why not this processed EEG can tell you so much about the brain. We're so unsophisticated with how we deal with brains. We really need to get clever about it, and it's beyond awareness. Other people have said, no, no, that's too far. It's not necessary. So just what's your comment yeah, so, about processed EEG? So, so this is one where I think I've learned a lot uh, during the process of going through this working part because I, I, I don't use TIVA. Um, maybe I, I need to learn to. Uh, so I, I have almost no experience of processed EG monitoring. Um, but certainly watching the, the webinar that was just on Saturday has made me realize how, how really useful it can be. Now, I know it's an evolving technology and, and the, its clinical usefulness is still being um, refined and evaluated. Um, but certainly in patients who are paralyzed, it seems absolutely essential that it should be used um, for the reasons we've talked about in, in relation to um, to, a, to a awareness. What you clearly do not want to do is have a patient who is waking up whilst still paralysed. Um, you want to keep them asleep until your other monitor, your uh, neuromuscular monitor, has, has demonstrated full reversal. So, yeah, absolutely, I see the utility of it uh, and. Again, I learned on Saturday how much the monitors have improved over the last few years and how much how, how, how easily interpretable they are. Um, so, you know, for me, this is something I need to delve into more and kind of uh, integrate into my practice, I think. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Wonderful. All right. Before we close, um, I think the paper's really great. The guidelines are safe. They're pragmatic. Um, they're very easy to read and must read for all anaesthetists. But as we know, guidelines are one thing um, and implementation is quite another. So I just wanted to pick um, all of your brains for a moment to say if you're an anaesthetist in a department or a clinical director working and there's a gap between these guidelines and where your unit is at the moment, how can we convince budget holders, how can we convince decision makers to move forward sort of with us? So, Tay, I'll start with you. Any ideas about implementation, any top tips that you've learned to so, get people to do what you want? 
So I, I'm I'm not a clinical director, but but in our department, when when we've had issues where we needed particular pieces uh, of equipment and we were struggling to to get them, we we would make the case in terms of throughput and cost savings and savings in terms of complaints. I mean, complaints are extremely costly, and um, also if if there's any litigation. As well, mm-hmm. so those are the kinds of arguments um, that we would make. Because of course, um, yeah. although going forward, I wonder if um, because we're so short-staffed and there's been so much focus on well-being, whether actually um, you could even talk about some of the second victim stuff and all that that might occur as a result of airway complications or things going wrong. And if you lose staff, that is that is a really expensive commodity to, to have lost. So we haven't yes, said that before. That is absolutely true, isn't it? When there's a bad outcome, the staff really, obviously it's terrible for the patient, but the staff, and I've, I've certainly been in the presence of junior anaesthetists absolutely distressed when something hasn't gone well. And it is, as you say, extremely harmful, particularly in those units who have had a lot of COVID and they're sort of up to here with it as well. Thank you. So, um, Tim, what would you, do you have any tips for implementation for anaesthetists, for clinical directors, how to get these guidelines yeah, well, I, I, in practice? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, recognise that th- these guidelines come out regularly. We do this on a five-year cycle. So think of it in those terms. Think, think that, you know, in five years' time, you should have implemented everything that's in, in, this, in this guideline and plan it over that time. You know, we know... The NHS is cash strapped at the moment and people don't have loads of money to splash out overnight. But I think if you pace yourself and spread this out over time and, and you know, target the areas that are the most important in, in your hospital, some hospitals will have more advancement in, in one area than another. Um, and, you know, look, look at the, the actual, the true cost of these things. You know, a neuromuscular blockade monitor is probably going to cost you less than a pound per use over its lifetime. Compare that to the cost of, I don't know, something like, a, you know, a hip replacement. How much does a prosthesis cost? I can't yeah. even begin yeah, that's, to oh, think. And, um, and, yeah. you know, and, and we just we just need to just be a bit more vocal and just and, and stand our ground uh, and, and be serious about, you know, increasing, uh, increasing patient safety, because that's what it's all about when it comes down to it. Really great comments there, Tim. And I would say um, the other Tim, the other author, um, Tim Cook was saying actually the CO2 monitoring guidelines not actually new. It's actually from the it's actually from the last one. So it is interesting, as you say, to look forward uh, when these guidelines are developed in five years' time. Can that be a target to make sure that you know, look that we actually have got these ones current in five years' time? Otherwise, we're as you say, a long way behind. Really great comments, um, Andy. Just a final comment from you. How do we get people to implement the guidelines? Any top? They're tips? actually standards uh, of monitoring. These are the only standards we bring out as the association. These are not really guidelines. These are standards. This is what you should be doing, not just a guideline. It's more than that. A standard is one step further than a guideline. Uh, and I think, as Tim says, you need to have a program for change. So you need to look at when you renew your anesthetic machines. You need to say, okay, so year one, we're going to get, we're, we, we have got no quantitative monitoring. We see that as a real safety issue. So year one's quantitative monitoring. Year two, uh, renewing our anaesthetic machines in that year. So we need to re- renew half of them and look at transport monitors with them uh, and EEG mo- monitoring built in with them and, and look at a program, see what's out there. One day we can all go to a conference again and see some new equipment and look at it and uh, talk about it with our colleagues. 
talk to them about what they're doing. And, and you know, it's a, it's a programme of renewal over a period of time. We're not suggesting you go out tomorrow and buy everything. But I, I think, you know, there, there are things on here that are essential for patient care and patient safety. And we spend millions on robots and laparoscopes and, you know, the trocars for a laparoscopic colectomy cost thousands. And yet we can't spend a couple of thousand pounds on a quantitative monitor. We're spending 200 bucks here on Sagamadex. It's we need to focus on the things that are important uh, and for patient safety. Wonderful. All right. Well, I'm going to close the session now. I've got the paper printed off. It's uh, 25 to 7 in the morning. I'm on my way to run an emergency list with a lovely trainee. We're going to be discussing this paper today. Um, I recommend everybody do does exactly what I've done. Download it. It's free for everybody. Thank you to the journal for allowing everyone in the world to have it without having to pay for it. Um, and I really encourage everybody to talk about the paper and see how we can really stand up for safety. It's so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining oh, me. Thank you, Tanya, for getting up this early to to, to chat to us it's lovely to see you i hope you get so catch up on your breakfast and uh, <laughs> this out on your breakfast so thank you so much coffee is essential thank you also thank you tay thank you tim and thank you andy okay good to bye. see you see you soon bye bye, bye. bye. the anesthesia podcast <laughs>